Hello, everybody, and welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I've gotten tired of trying to write witty introductions, but the thing is, I look up things I think are cool. And then tell us And then it. I do teach them to yes. that's the That's the title, but you know, that's Makes the sense. premise. I, I, don't, I don't really think that anyone cared about the snappy introduction, but... Uh, yeah. Uh, I'll work we'll see on if they it demand it or not. Yeah. See which one's more popular. Um, I am Melissa. And I'm Everett. So, I, you may not know what that title of this episode means. Or you and might. I wouldn't blame you. Okay. It's good. Uh, spoiler alert. We'll talk about it like halfway through the episode. Acromermex is a genus of leafcutter ant. So, you know, we'll talk about them soon, um, because this episode is about farming. Um, yes. Farming and animals, of which we are, of course, an animal, yes. So it's primarily just about farmers. It's about farmers, yeah. Like, but not just necessarily human farmers, is what you're getting at. I mean, I might talk about human farmers. Maybe. Depends how slow we go, or okay. fast. I found some farming facts about Canada, but I didn't think we'd have time, so... Uh-oh. If, you know, maybe. Maybe we'll have time. Maybe. We'll okay, see. well, there you um, go. We invented farming, obviously, like 10,000 years ago, and it's been really important to us. But, uh, as you may know, but animals don't farm to that extent. Sure. <laughs> so, you, But you might be surprised to find out how many, how many animals uh, do engage in that kind of behavior. I am interested. How about you teach me something? Awesome. So, um, when animals cultivate farms and herd livestock, which they do. Um, we refer to it as cultivation mutualism, if you're being really fancy in biology. Okay. Um, but, like, just think about it as a symbiotic relationship. Right. Uh, otherwise, it just it wouldn't have evolved. It must be of good course. for both parties or else it would have stopped happening. Yeah. Basically. Um, so in cultivation mutualism, what we're saying is that the animal is preparing a field for what they're growing or doing something to enhance their growth. Um, it's, it's harvesting from them. So even though some of them are going to be a little more of a stretch <laughs> sure. than others, um, it's, it's really amazing to see like the different types of farming and kind of the diversity of the behaviors. I wouldn't say the types of animals are super diverse. This is a primitive invertebrate type of behavior for the most part um we're really only going to talk about two types of vertebrates and one of them is maybe us okay um farming is a invertebrate type of thing so i'm going to start with the insects let's do it uh, move on to other interesting invertebrates after that so first up are something called ambrosia beetles hmm. so the ambrosia beetles are Sounds like the gods would like them Right? I keep thinking of ambrosia salad, though. It makes me want ambrosia salad. I want to eat some. Sure. Um, they are weevils in one of two subfamilies, either scolitinae or platypodinae. Um, I don't I don't know what those mean. I didn't bother. Okay. Um, so those ones are the ones that have a symbiotic relationship with fungus, and that's how they eat. Okay. Um, so it's called obligate symbiosis. Like, they have to eat. They have to farm this fungus. They have to eat this fungus. There is no other way that they can keep themselves alive, nutritionally speaking. So obligate meaning they must do it. Right. They must do this behavior. Um, so there's 11 different groups within those two subfamilies that do this. So ambrosia beetles aren't um, 
what we call a monophyletic group. They aren't, you know, a group that has all the descendants of one common ancestor. We're giving it kind of a common name and pulling from different families. So they're not all closely related oh. to, as closely related to each other as they are to some other types. Okay. So ambrosia beetles isn't a name that's like technically a family or a type. We're, we're grouping them it's all together. All name. the ones that do this, all these wood boring, fungus growing weevils. Um, if you were curious, because I thought, you know what, I've heard a lot, I've heard weevil a lot through my life. What is a weevil? Like, what separates weevil from beetle? I mean, it is a type of beetle, but what makes it a weevil? Turns out it's a long-snouted beetle. They're known for their long snouts, so if you see a long snout, it's a weevil. Okay, I didn't know that. I'm sure now you know. The yeah. more you know. So there are about 3,200 species of ambrosia beetles. Um, and it includes like the pine beetles, which is something in Western North America, right. especially you probably have heard of is the pine beetles. They can cause some havoc for forests. forests. Um, but generally that's because of the way we've changed the forest, but you know, I digress. Um, the ambrosia beetles are actually named after the fungus that they grow, the ambrosia fungi. There are a few dozen species of ambrosia fungi, um, and scientists think there's still, like, a ton more. It's really hard to study these things because if you open up the bark to look at what's happening, then, of course, they, they don't keep doing their activities. Right. So it's really hard to actually find out what's going on with these things. There's probably tons of stuff that we don't know at all. Um, so the cool thing about the fungi is it's not found anywhere else. Like, it's only grown in these uh, tunnels that the weevils make. Um, so they domesticated it. It's a domesticated crop. Right. It can't grow without the beetles, and the beetles can't live without it. It's their staple domesticated crop. Um, a common misconception is that the, like, the beetles eat the wood, which they, they do not. They just bore through it, kick out all the um, sawdust. They make really elaborate tunnels, and then they start introducing the fungi to the tunnel. So they plant it in there. Okay. The fungus relies on them to disperse. They have no method of dispersal. They gave up their spores. Evolutionary speaking, they lost that ability. Because they didn't need it anymore. And and so the the fungi grow uh, basically on the nutrients of the tree. Correct. Okay. They use the tree as nutrition. And they grow these little globs of food for the beetle larvae to eat. Um, and then the females of the pot, like the beetles, will lay eggs in the tunnels. Um, the larvae, like they just eat fungi. And they kind of eat the, the roots. Um the hyphae or the mycelium they call it these yeah. are just like kind of root type things in fungus because it's not technically roots in a fungus but no. think of them like that they're like little roots um which are like lining the walls of these tunnels or all the roots they, they, to me they've always seemed more like you know tracers or like you know little runner threads yeah. almost yeah totally little threads for sure um and so they also eat these these bodies the these like kind of nutritious bodies like um, that the fungus grows that are called sporodokia. Sure. So it's like it's like clusters of spores. And then so that's another thing that beetles eat. Okay. Is that. Um, um, so the fun fact I found is that these are fungus farms and yet it's known for smelling amazing. Really? Ambrosia fungus apparently. Um, some uh, smell like ripe banana. I do like that. Right? That... Like, what? That's Are crazy. there other beetles that make fungi that smell like peanut butter? Because then it's a great little snack. 
Uh, you'd have to Google that information. I could neither confirm nor deny such a such a theory okay. at this time. Well, I hope it's the case. <laughs> um, so the interesting thing, I think, is that this fungus is planted and like cultivated only by females. Oh. Um, males play virtually no role in anything. This is a type of beetle where the male is very short-lived and their only role is to... Mate mate with their sisters because you know how trees are a very close environment so yeah. that's their that's their mission they don't need to eat they don't need to worry about the food just mate and die that's what males do um so i mean and females do need them to fertilize them though because in in these types of beetles fertilized eggs produce more females okay unfertilized eggs produce males oh sure okay yeah so that's why males haven't just died out completely because right. they need to keep producing more females because the females are the ones that grow the food and all that, you know, well, sounds familiar. And right? make more eggs. <laughs> oh, of course. Yes. Um, so there's actually multiple species of fungi and bacteria that end up growing in there that the female is carefully controlling. Um, if females are removed, the garden gets completely destroyed by bacteria and virus and stuff. So, um, and then when it's time for dispersal, like find a new tree, the females carry the spores with them in a special organ that they've developed, like a kind of like a pouch on their back called mycangia. And they like put spores in there and carry them to the new tree. And then they use some pheromones to colonize this tree. Um, so they'll like launch, all the females will launch a mass attack on the pine tree. Um, and the tree is going to try to fill the tunnels they're making with sap. Sap, yeah. Yeah. So the beetles are going to use this chemical that starts coming out of the tree to find the tree. Like they want to find a specific species of tree, right? Sure. So um, there's an aromatic chemical called uh, a, like terpene. Monoterpene. I know. It's so familiar sounding. I can't. I must have read it before. Anyways. Um, it's, yeah. It's, it's a smell the tree makes. The beetles can smell. And then they use the silhouette. So... Um, they try to find the right tree and then they like release different pheromones and call more beetles to it. It's very interesting. So I want to give an example. So the Western pine beetle, that's the one that we hear about the most and Drachtonus brevicomus. Um, so again, females find the host, the first kind of wave of them. In this case, they're attracted by myrcene is the monoterpene the tree puts out. And then it emits more of it when it's injured and stressed and stuff. So as soon sure. as they start attacking, then it smells more. So more of the beetles start coming, right? Um, and then the females release their pheromone once they tunnel into the tree. And then it that pheromone also makes um, males come. Okay. And then the male has a pheromone he releases. Um... Anyway, so all like that mercine, the female pheromone, the male pheromone, it's, a, it's like attracting like, like an army basically because they have to all invade at once or else the tree can fill the holes too quickly. Right. Yeah, basically. yeah. There's enough sap to go yeah. around basically. But then the interesting thing is that once males and females mate, then they start sending out different pheromones. So these pheromones stop more beetles from coming. Oh. Because they want to keep, they like have to control their population in a tree. Right. Or else they over exploit that tree and they have to find a new tree and move on much sooner. Yeah, because then there could be health effects for the tree that they're trying to avoid. They want their like home to last for a long time. Technically, 
there's no reason that they have to even be hurting the tree. Like, yeah, the tree is damaged by this, right? Yeah. But the reason it's an issue is just when it's overpopulation and out of control. That's what the issue with the beetles are. There's no issue with how they normally run their farms, right? Mm-hmm. Like fungus, the tree can support some fungus. It's fine. Yeah. It's when it's a ton of it, you know what I mean? It's Then it overwhelms the tree, right? Right. Um, so there are other groups of bark beetles that eat the like phloem layer of tree bark. I don't know. There's layers of trees, xylem, phloem, I forget all the ones, but they also do grow fungi to like supplement their diet. So they are uh, mycophloophages. <laughs> it's basically like, you know, they do kind of need this fungus but mm, they're they not maybe, obligated to it y- right and so that's called facultative when something's not obligate okay optional facultative anyway so there is different kind of steps different levels of, of farming going on with um with different bark beetles those are closely related are, are those in that ambrosia beetle? no these, these are a different okay a different group mycophloophage <laughs> Oh, you said, I just didn't, okay. Got it. It's not a very familiar word. No. I didn't know if we were still talking about the same common name or not. And obviously not. Um, these are, I'm no expert. I'm just, uh, these are the things I saw, the terms I saw. But I want to talk about termites next because they're also insects. They are insects. And they also farm, which I didn't really realize because, you know, like many of you probably, I was like, termites eat wood. Termites eat wood that destroy your house. Termites eat wood, right? Termites eat wood. Not all termites. Like the weevils, there are sub like species and groups within the termites that farm fungus. Um, There are over 3,100 species of termites. They live mostly in Africa, but they do exist in every continent, you know, except Antarctica. Sure. Um, Sure. Like, we don't even need to say that part. Of course they don't. Yeah. (laughs) So something interesting I learned today is that despite what I thought were similarities. Termites actually are not closely related to ants whatsoever. Okay. Um, and when I looked at a picture closer, I kind of saw they don't have the three body segments. Like, like I saw the differences, but I've never okay. closely looked at a termite before. So I just assumed they look like big ants. Um, they're actually very closely related to cockroaches. Oh, so do they have like a, like a singular, like instead of body parts, like one long body part then? Like, like a head and a thorax. Yeah, yeah, just two, the two, the head and the thorax. Like okay. Garbage. Yes, they um, probably uh, evolved from a wood-eating beetle. Okay. Wood-eating cockroach. Sure. And then diverged from a cockroach line. So that's their closest relationship is cockroaches. Um, so termites rely on, like I said, most of them rely on this gut bacteria to decompose plant matter that they that they can't digest themselves that's normal how most termites feed themselves but there's a subfamily called macrotermitinae macrotermitinae close enough i'm gonna trust you um they developed a symbiotic relationship with fungi of the genus termitomyces a lot of fun names in this episode yeah i'm I'm not gonna remember that but okay except for i don't remember any of them either but i'm reading them sure on my screen so i'm nailing it so these fungus-growing termites plant their fungi in, like, you know, gardens inside their big colony. Like, everyone's seen those huge termite mounds. Yeah. Those, this type of termite has those huge mounds. Um, have these tunnels all through with the fungi. And then they pre-chew up plant material. 
and then they feed it, like feed these pellets of plant material to their fungi. Cool. Um, the termites wait for like big mushrooms to grow and then they eat them. Um, but also they eat, so they re-eat the plant material after the fungus takes a turn kind of digesting it a little bit. It converts it into something that's very digestible and protein rich. Um, so they couldn't eat it before. The fungus takes what it needs from it, makes the mushroom and breaks the stuff down for the ants to eat again, or the termites to eat again. So it's pretty, that's cool. pretty cool. And the other cool thing about this is that these fungus growing termites play a really uh, important role, like ecologically, in African savanna ecosystems. Sure. Um, so most of the decomposition of woody plant material in Africa and Asia is actually done by fungus growing termites. And in some savanna areas, it's like more than 90% of the dry wood is processed by ma- the macro termitinae termites. Very cool. So, yeah, that. That's pretty interesting. Um, and I also think it's interesting that um, they, they're they trying to get the fungus to grow mushrooms to eat them. And later we're going to learn about a species that absolutely does not want their fungus growing any mushrooms. Okay. So, it, again, it just highlights the diversity of um, how they've made this work. Uh, so, in southwest Tanzania, researchers discovered these fossilized fungus gardens created by termites about 25 million years ago. Oh, so a little while ago. Yeah, just a little bit. No, some of these numbers in this in this episode are actually pretty staggering. It's pretty cool. Um, so the gardens revealed that the ancient termites were cultivating fungus by them. You know, like this evolved clearly a very long time ago. Um, this fungus garden fossilized evidence here is the oldest physical evidence of agriculture on Earth. Yeah. So that's pretty cool to have that physical evidence of it. Um, and yeah, they, they were somehow able to analyze the fungus in the fossilized gardens and find out that it was a species that only grew when it was cultivated. Like it wouldn't have grown by itself. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so the new origins, after they did this study, of termite agriculture now date to around 31 million years ago. Wow. Right? Wow, wow. Super cool. Okay. Um, but let's, let's go to the ants because there's like so many different types of ant farmers. It's really interesting. Um, and to be clear, we're not talking about people who farm ants. I know that's tough, right? Cause there are ant farms, which are, I don't know why did those ever become called farms is my question. Uh, I don't know. Because to me it's you're just not farming them. You're just tubes. looking at them. Well, yeah, it's just like pet ants. Why yeah. is that a farm? That's true. Why can't you just say, here's my pet ants. I have lots of them. Yeah, here's my ant colony. I don't know what's confusing about that, but okay. Um, I'm Doesn't talking have the about same ring to it, I ants guess. that farm. Okay. And ranch, in this case, a little bit, too. Yeah. So, Included with, oh, like, overalls and a straw hat. <laughs> Just lots of them. Oh, dear. Um, so, some ants farm aphids. Yeah. Ranch aphids. Farm aphids. I think ranching is might I think be the, ranch is right. Well, yeah. but, but is ranching only if you eat it? Because like dairy farms are still farms, not a ranch. I so these are so. like ant dairy farms. It's as close as you can come with this one. Um, so aphids, if you don't know them, are like really tiny little pests, and they drink the sap of plants. Um, and there are several ant species that herd aphids the same way, like that we keep cows. Um, and but instead of milk aphids actually excrete this sugary liquid they 
call it honeydew, and the ants love it. Got it. Um, so the ants, like, tend to the aphids and protect them from their predators, like ladybugs. Right. Um, they move them from plant to plant when they need to. And then they tap on them. And then the aphids, like, excrete honeydew. <laughs> okay. Um, so this, it is almost like milking them, in a sense. It, yeah, it is. And there's other ants that... you use the right word, honeydewing them. <laughs> oh, no. That doesn't sound the same as milking. Yeah, no, okay. <laughs> it doesn't. Should probably doesn't. just move on. <laughs> <laughs> there's other ants that do the same thing with um, types of bugs called mealybugs or scale insects. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, so, like, the ants actually do a lot to take care of the aphids. They sometimes can train them to, like, poop in a way that makes it easier for the ants to get the honeydew, like, away from, the poops away from the honeydew. Okay. Um, they, they become trained, like, the longer the ants have them, to withhold their honeydew until they're stroked or tapped by the ant. Wow. Um, even more fascinating, some of the ants clip the wings off their domesticate, like, the aphid populations. Right. <laughs> they can't get away. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, I, that makes sense. Well, I mean, again, but the aphids, you know what? They, they're getting something out of this too, right? I mean, they are being, being protected. protected so. Being given access to a food source. Yeah. Um, now, the ant, in this case, I assume this isn't, uh, going back to what you said, this isn't an obligate relationship or this is a what do you call it faculty no, i'm sure it's i'm sure it's an obligate relationship because the only thing that they can well the honey it's the only eating. thing that they do eat so try to okay. change that i don't know i don't i don't have evidence currently because i didn't look into this but sure. that doesn't seem like something that they could again they could evolve away from it but in the current condition this is their this is their diet right this is what they do okay um Researchers have also learned recently that ants' footprints have a chemical that, you know, to keep the aphid colony nearby. So they already knew, we already knew apparently, I didn't know, that ants use chemicals in their footprints to mark their territories. Okay. But I guess we knew about, I don't know, Magic School Bus did teach me they had some kind of pheromone in their footprints that helped ants follow in a line, right? Right. So footprints have pheromones in ants. That's a pretty well-established thing is what we're saying. And now it's like, oh, similar to that. They kind of have this tranquilizer chemical they can put in their footprints. So they make like a fence out of tranquil tranquilizer. Cool. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. Um, so another cool thing that the ants do is to manipulate the reproduction rates of their aphids to have like the specific mix of the red color and the green color that they want in the herd. So green aphids are inferior. Oh, I didn't look far enough into it to know exactly why they're inferior. It's just that they would be outbred by the red ones if there was no intervention. They are inferior in breeding for some reason. Okay. Yes. Um, so, for example, the aphid species, oh no, Macrosiphoniella yomagocola. Oh. <laughs> That's a terrible name I'm never saying again. It comes in two morphs, two colors, red and green. So, um, usually when there's polymorphism, more than one morph, one color wins. Okay. Polymorphisms don't tend to stick around in populations for a long time. Sure. Okay. But, you know, this is outside intervention is what's happening here. Um, and why, why is it happening is the question. 
we can tell that the green aphids are still around, so the ants must be doing something. So what are they doing, right? So there's this guy, uh, Professor Yusuke Hasegawa in Hokkaido, that's done all these studies on an ant called Lassius japonicus. Um, and he found that the ants were most attracted to and most vigorously protected colonies with 65% green, 35% red. Wow. Turns out, he found out, they prefer the honeydew made by the green aphids. The ants. This is, so this is their motivation. They prefer the honeydew. So they're going to keep these, this population up. So then the question becomes, what's, what would be your next question now? Uh, like, why is it preferable? Well, because they prefer the honeydew. But why but, are they keeping but, but, any red ones at all? Well, I assume that they can't just eliminate all the red ones. They certainly could. Now that you know that they certainly could, that would be your next question, wouldn't it? Yeah. So, they did another study. Um, and uh, it, it turns out that the... Um, it's like the red has its upside as well, right? Um, they they think that they're providing, you know, some kind of benefit, maybe suppressing the development of lower buds on the plants they live on. And for some reason that's preferable. I couldn't figure out why that's preferable, but this is a theorized benefit. Um, and then apparently this just helps them survive and feed more. Okay. So if that was the case then it could help them survive more, you know, throughout the year. So maybe they keep them around for this reason. But the question, like, they just don't exactly know why are they keeping uh, this many red ones around because the green benefit is obvious. Right. But like I said, if left alone, the red would completely... Eventually take over. It would take over. So that's interesting. Um, and then the next ant I want to talk about, um, it's a type of ant that farms scale insects. They're, so they're called diapsids. Diapsidids. Okay. That's I, important. Diapsids are different than diapsidids. That's annoying. I'm just going to say scale insects. We don't perfect. really need to know which scale insect. I, I, can, even, I can memorize that much more easily. Right? So there is a genus of ants, Melissa torsus. Mm-hmm. And they farm scale insects. And they studied them because... They don't excrete honeydew, these scale insects. Okay. This is the only genus that farms something that doesn't excrete honeydew. And they're like, why? Why are you doing this? <laughs> sure. So they studied, um, these researchers, three colonies in Mozambique. Um, and, of course, again, they had a hard time because they tried to dig up, you know, just the top layer and see what's going on. But it obviously throws things off a little bit. Um, but they're trying to figure out if the ants maybe eat these okay. insects. Like, like maybe actual this ranching. is ranching. Yeah. They have never, we have never proven ranching in animals exists. Okay. So the question is, is this, because they also can eat different things that the scale insects make. Like there's um, like a wax and proteins that they kind of secrete. Like they call it um, their scale or their shell. Anyways, they can kind of munch on this excretion that builds up. Um, but they just don't think that that's um, the whole diet. Like there's no way that that's feeding all of these ants. So what's going on, but we can't see what's going on kind of thing. So what they did um, is you can um, just grind up bugs. 
You can. And you can grind most things. <laughs> You'll appreciate this. It's chemistry, okay? Okay. Okay. You can check what isotopes occur in animals. Yeah, absolutely. And plants. Mm-hmm. And you can therefore assume the isotopes that an animal eats come, or the animal has, comes from the plants it yeah. eats. Correct. Okay. So there's this naturally occurring stable isotope technique um, where there's a heavier nitrogen isotope, which is nitrogen 15. Right. And then there's a lighter one that's much more abundant, which is nitrogen 14. Yeah. Um, and so basically, if you use the stable isotope ratios for not like nitro- nitrogen and there's, you know, different ratios for carbon, basically what they can do is tell what something's been eating. It's yeah. very, I'm not going to try to explain the whole process here. Um, but they tested the fun or the scale insects and then they tested the ants and they could tell they they're pretty sure they're and no one can make a firm conclusion right now, but all the analysis, they did some different analyses and all that stuff, um, as well as taking actual sections from the ant's stomach and just getting the lacondics of their stomach as well as grinding up the ants. Anyways, all that leads to the fact that they really do think that this Melissa Tarsus ant is a predator of the scale insect that they have been raising. So okay. we may have evidence of ranching in animals. Very cool. Which is super cool. Um, and then you have the Devil's Garden ants. This one's a little bit of a stretch. They're kind of, they're foresters. Okay. Yeah. So, like, they live in the Amazon, and they like this one tree, a uh, species of tree, Doroia hirsuta. And they, they live on this tree and kill all the plant life in a very yeah. big area around this tree. They're more like... They find one and then they're protecting it to make sure that it continues to grow. Yeah. So yeah. they like go and inject um, formic acid into the plant, any plants that start growing in the area to kill them. Um, and so they have this big radius. There's areas of the Amazon where there's this big radiuses of cleared plant life and just one tree in the middle. Um, the Devil's Garden Ants is uh, Mermelachista schumanni, if anyone was really wanted to know more. Um, I did not, names. but that's okay. Um, take that then. So now I'm going to talk about probably the most well-known animal farmer. Um, the one, only one out of all of these I had learned about before, uh, this episode, which is the leafcutter ants. Yes. Um, they belong to two different genera, which means genuses, but genera, um, Atta and Acromyrmix. So that's where our Acromyrmix head farm comes from. Yes. Um, so they cut leaves from rainforest and they bring pieces to their nest and grow fungus with them. They don't eat the leaves. Um, so, you know, another type of fungus gardener. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they can't live without their fungus and the fungus can't live without the ants. Young, like, queen ants carry a bit of the fungus to the next nest. Right. So you can actually kind of track genetics of, like, different nests that way. It's kind of interesting. You can map out, like, Yeah, which ones are where. older and... Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, so the fungus has evolved to not produce um, spores to reproduce itself anymore. Not right. waste energy doing that. So it's, like, again, it's completely reliant on the ants. The ants are reliant on it. So domestication. Um, and it does happen in these modern leafcutter ants. But 
there are other ants that behave in the same or similar manner that just haven't completely domesticated their fungus yet. Okay. Um, so this is what I was kind of talking about before. When I was talking about um, growing mushrooms versus not. Um, these ants don't want their fungus to be growing mushrooms. So like, just like we harvest our vegetables before they turn into seeds, mm-hmm. they want to harvest their fungus before it puts any energy into making mushrooms which are full of spores um but it's just funny to me that they don't find that as a like they can't use that as their food source the same way that clearly the you know beetles could or right so they think it's just like a useless resource for them um so it's best for the ants if their fungus grows more of their like hyphae their fun like those root like things from the fungus um so when they did a study of an ancestor of the leafcutters, um, Mycoseparus smithi, and it hasn't domesticated its fungus. So they discovered that these ants adjust the like protein and carbohydrate concentration of the plant matter that they're feeding their fungus. Okay. And they do that to try to minimize the amount of the mushrooms. So when they give when they give their fungus mulch with higher carbohydrates, they produce both the hyphae and the mushrooms. But when they give them like doses of protein, like the right amount of protein, um, that actually prevents the fungus from making the mushrooms. Right. Cause it doesn't have the resources it needs to do that. Right. Uh, well, no, 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 no. The protein stops them from making mushrooms. Adding protein stops them somehow. Okay. I don't know the mechanism. I sure. don't know if they know either, but I don't know. Um, the thing is, obviously, there's going to be a downside to this, sure. which is that the f- the fungus is kind of remains, has like a lower output of food for the ants because they would need more protein to, or um, they're just not growing as much as they could have, Okay, basically. Um, so what, what do we know about ant farming back in history? Well, we think it originated 45 to 55 million years ago in South America. See, that's crazy. That's so long ago. Um, When like a hunter-gatherer ant ancestor irreversibly committed to the lifestyle of only eating this fungus. Um, And scientists now think it took at least 30 million years until the Atine, the the genus Atta, Atine ants, um, fully domesticated one of their fungi. Wow. Yeah. And so that kind of... um, Oh, 15 million years ago-ish, modern leafcutter ants emerge with their domesticated fungi. Um, so, like, I just want to clarify that there are, like, the modern leafcutter ants that have domesticated their fungi of those two genuses, genera, I talked about. Um, but there are also those ancestor ants still are alive today because ants are crazy old. So, like, that mycoseparus I just mentioned, that was, like, in the ancestral condition of... Before this step in evolution, we almost had our fungus, you know, domesticated and then leafcutter. That guy's still around today. Those guys in that lineage are still around today. So we wow. have both conditions. Yeah. Um, and I mean, contrast that to, to humans. Obviously, our domestication process has been a little quicker than 30 million years. A little bit. I understand why. Don't get me wrong. I'm not making fun of these ants here, but the scales are quite different. I mean, I guess this would be a moment where you, if you chose to, you could put them down and mock them for how long it took them. Bananas have only been like they were for a very short period. Yeah. 
turns out humans have some advantages, I guess. So scientists also wanted to discover how ant farming made that jump. They became irreversible. Sure. And I think it happened because ants lost their arginine biosynthesis pathway. Arginine, okay. Arginine's an amino acid. Cool. Okay. Um, uh, so they can no longer make this amino acid themselves. They need to feed on the fungus to get this amino acid. Okay. There is a set of amino acids every organism needs to work with. Um, and amino acids are important because they build everything. They build proteins. Proteins build everything. So if you, I don't know, does the term essential amino acid sound familiar to you? Very much so. Yeah. So an essential amino acid is, um, it's different for different organisms. Every organism has their own set of essential amino acids, but they're the ones that the organism cannot make themselves and must ingest in their diet. Otherwise they'll die. Right. It's why cats need meat or they'll die. Yeah. They are obligate carnivores because they don't have all the amino acids they need unless they eat meat. Okay. Um, so, the domesticated fungus of the leafcutter ants also changed in response to, you know, this relationship. Makes sense. Um, it grows, like, specialized organs, which are called um, gongolidia. <laughs> and inside the gongolidia are, like, fats and proteins, which, of course, the ants, ants eat. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fungus gets... So, the fungus needs to release enzymes to break down plants to absorb the nutrients, Okay. So what happens is it fills the gongolidia with enzymes as well as the other stuff for the ants. The ants eat them, but they can't digest the enzymes. Okay. So the enzymes come out in the ant poop still active. Okay. Still able to break things down, which is what enzymes do. Yeah. Um, so basically what the ants are doing is they're bringing new plant material into the nest, placing it on the fungus, and then poo on top. And then that gets the fungus enzymes right down on the plant matter, breaks it down. It uses its roots to take the... So as much as the ants are using the fungus for food, the fungus is kind of using the ant like trucks to put the enzymes all over the plant matter for them. And help them grow more. Yeah. So if you want to see these guys in action, you um, don't need to trek through the jungle. I will recommend a visit to the Victoria Bug Zoo, which is like small, but awesome collection of insects and they have a colony of leafcutter ants running along they all do. the walls. Yeah, it's very cool. It's really cool to see. Actually, um, I think it's two colonies. Is it separate colonies? I think it's two oh. separate colonies that look like the tubes go together but are in fact separate. Oh, you guys are going to have to go check this out. Yes, I remember having this discussion and looking around last time we were there. Oh, okay. Um, so, I'm going to be done with insects. There's okay, a few fine. Examples. We're done with them. There's a few examples that are not insects. All right. Snails. Yeah. This one is also maybe a bit of a stretch, but we're kind of at maybe an early point in the evolution of this relationship. Sure. It is going somewhere. So there's a genus of snails called Litterina. They live in, you know, the intertidal region where, you know, the tide comes up when the tide's high, yeah. but not is not always there yet. Yeah. Um, so they, to feed some of these, some species of them, not all of them, um, they make these gashes in the plants, um, cord grass. Okay. And then they poop on them. Oh, that's not very nice. Nobody did. Okay. That's very yeah. nice. So they have this like tongue-like 
thing called a radula to scrape. So they like scrape the grooves and then, yeah, poop in the grooves and um, it encourages the growth of fungi. I mean, I guess it's not nice to the plants, but it's nice to the fungi. Um, so poop has lots of nitrogen and the poop has lots of fungal hyphae, like the little roots that can start growing again because the snails eat the fungi. This makes sense. So then they use the grass to grow more fungi. Right. And recently it has been confirmed that it seems like they're doing it on purpose. The pooping in there is on purpose. Because that was a stretch, right? It's like, okay, I mean, yeah, but don't snails just poop everywhere? You know what I mean? Like, sure. are they really doing it on purpose? Um, because they found out that juvenile snails raised on uninfected leaves. So, like, they don't have the fungus. Um, they don't grow and are more likely to die. So, for some species, like the one in this study, which is uh, Litterina errorata, is a marsh periwinkle. It's definitely something they're doing on purpose because they need this. So that's pretty cool. It is cool. Um, and there's a species of marine wag, ragworm. I don't even know what that is. A marine ragworm. It's a worm. Okay. Um, and it's called Hadiste diversicolor. And they recently discovered it was planting seeds and waiting for them to grow and eating the sprouts. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So they already knew that these ragworms ate cord grass and they saw them bring the seeds back to the burrows. But the issue was that like they knew a worm couldn't get into the seed. Okay. Like, what are they doing with these seeds? Worms can't break open the seed and it's got a really tough husk. What are they doing with these things? Where you, they knew they were burying them. They thought, okay, they're burying them so they won't be washed away by the tides. But if they can't get into them, why are they storing them at all? Like, that right. doesn't answer the question. It doesn't seem like a useful resource to them. Right. So then in 2016, kind of recently, um, Zhencheng Zhu discovered that it was burying them, waiting for the seed to germinate, and then, yeah, eating the sprout. Um, so, like, they do have a varied diet. They don't just eat this. Okay. They eat, like, little invertebrates and, like, plant debris and all that stuff. Um, but the sprouts are really high in protein, fats, and amino acids, and they're, like much more nutritious than a raw seed would be. So, you know, this is a clearly beneficial thing yeah. they're doing for themselves. Um, so the hypothesis from this guy's shoe was that they started doing this because of a lack of high quality food sources in around them. Sure. Um, so they wanted to test it and they gave 20 different worms, like different diets. And uh, so the worms started out the same size as much as they could control that. They got the same size worms. Um, And then the worms that ate sprouts gained more weight. So 25% more weight. Oh, that's quite a lot. Compared with, yeah, the worms that ate the other diet, which is just like raw seeds and sediment stuff, only grew 5%. Okay. Yeah. So um, this Zhu guy also thinks that these specific ragworms might be cultivating bacteria in the burrow to eat as well. Um, it would be cool to be able to learn more about that, but it's a pretty recent discovery, so maybe there'll be more information coming soon. Um, he also thinks that this might be a behavior in the animal kingdom that occurs that we just don't know about, like Specifically squirrels, with the rats, no, just, just sprouting nuts because nuts are okay. so hard to get into. Sure. And yeah. seeds, sprouting nuts and seeds. And because as soon as they sprout, it's infinitely more digestible, nutritious, so many things. that It must be a behavior maybe we just don't know about. You know, nuts and seeds are stored by so many animals, rodents even. Yeah. Um, earthworms. 
he thinks maybe earthworms, because they have similar diet constraints, might also sprout seeds. So, wow. you know, that would be, be really cool. cool if true, yeah. Um, second last, but definitely not least, because I think these are pretty cool animals that were also discovered pretty recently, are the Yeti crabs. So, Yeti crabs are also called dancing Yeti crabs, for reasons we'll get to, and... I'm, I'm assuming because of the dancing. Oh, yeah, the dancing. You'll learn about the dancing. Mm-hmm. And they're also called abominable Yeti crabs, for obvious reasons I won't mention, because you probably know them already. Of snowmen. Yeah. And uh, so they're a group of crabs that wasn't discovered until 2005. Wow. They are covered in, well... Sometimes their fur looks white or their hair looks white, and that's why people have named them Yeti crab. But then when you look at pictures, it's like golden. I mean, it depends on the lighting conditions is the thing, right? Sure. They're in the very, very deep, deep ocean. They live incredibly deep where, like, the hydrothermal vents, you know, that's yeah. where their habitat. Well, it's hard to um, tell if their dress is blue and black or white and gold oh, at that God. point. I, I still, like, that one still messes with me because I know what's correct in my eyes. Well you see with your brain my brain refuses to see the correct colors um so there's not much food in the deep deep no oceans um my many many deep sea animals rely on the hydrothermal vents that release methane and hydrogen sulfide and bacteria can use those things for food sources yeah not really any other life forms can so thank goodness for that bacteria and the Yeti crab uses the like bristles, we're going to call them, the hair on its arms, um, to grow bacteria to eat. Cool. So the hair is covered with bacteria and the crabs stand near the hydrothermal vents and they wave their claws to make movement in the water because they're mixing the water and getting it, the, you know, bacteria more nutrients, you know, contact yeah. with um, the water from right. the vents and giving it more oxygen, like oxygenating everything. So, um, yeah, it helps it grow and then it like eats off its arms and then grows more, you know, it doesn't all, it cultivates it. So it makes sure it never eats too much at once. You know, it's, uh, it's pretty intense. So, you know, that waving arm thing that they just constantly do is why they were named dancing baby crabs and, of course, yes, there are YouTube videos of them waving their arms in time to music, like Just Dance by Lady Gaga or Let's Dance by David Bowie. And no, they're not interesting. Don't bother looking them up. I regret <laughs> okay. I, oh, they sounded like they'd be so cool. No one decided to speed up the crab's arms to match the tempo of any of the music. They're slowly oh. waving their arms around and they're playing fast dance songs and it's just so disappointing. Damn. <sighs> So finally, we get on to the vertebrates. The one vertebrate we'll definitely talk about is the damselfish. Because it's like the only example. Okay. Farming's not really a vertebrate activity. Right. I mean, like you were saying, there's just, I, I guess, it, you know, the reveal is damselfish and then humans. Yeah. Well, well, maybe I'll talk about humans. Damselfish are a group of fish that's most closely related to clownfish. Um... There's lots of types of damselfish. Only some of them do this farming activity. Okay. But all the fish that farm are damselfish. So I'm just going to keep saying damselfish. Okay. I get what you're saying. But I'm not trying to say all damselfish do this. So most are colorful reef-dwelling fish in tropical or subtropical areas. 
Um, but some are like freshwater, cooler climates. They kind of are many, many, many different fish here, high diversity. Um, so it farms algae. And its farms are a monoculture of a species called polysiphonia. It's, it's a red algae, fast growing, easily digestible, and, you know, the only thing they grow. Yeah. So the fish, um, like, make sure that other algae species don't grow in their farmland territory. Makes sense. Um, and they're super, super territorial um, they, to get rid of other herbivores. They're not so much doing it for their safety. Just anything that comes near might eat their algae. So mm-hmm. um, they've been known to, you know, attack anything that swims too close to the farm, including Correct. human divers. Yeah. You're saying this so matter of fact that you know about damselfish attacking human divers? No, about them protecting their red algae farms. This was on Octonauts. This was on Octonauts? Yeah. I'm glad our children are learning cool things. Wow. Octonauts is a Netflix show for children, if anyone was wondering, and it's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So, the algae um, they prefer, the polysiphonia, is um, quickly, like, easily overgrazed compared to other species. And it's kind of weak, they put it, is how they put it. So, basically, um, they they need the damselfish to farm it. It would not exist outside of these areas because it's too weak and overgrazed right easily um so another example probably of domesticated crop but we're not 100 percent it's not like they've done a big survey to see if there's algae other places it's just when they do study the fish you know they only find the algae on their farms in areas where the fish live so we haven't done an exhaustive search but it seems like it only appears to be the case that it's yeah Exclusive to these locations. Yeah. And then there's... So there's a really special damselfish. Um, it's called Stegastes dienchius, but I'm going to call it longfin damselfish. Please do. Um, it kind of developed another really unique farming relationship on top of this algae farming one. Okay. So it lives in the coral reef by you know, Belize area, like Central America, um, and they have their algae farms, but, um, they have these swarms usually or always of tiny mycid shrimps, they're little crustaceans called mycid shrimps, floating above their farms. And the researchers were noting, of course, how unusual that was, seeing as how most farming damselfish chase away anything coming near their farm. Right. So when they looked closer, they found that the mycid shrimp were far more likely to be found near farming damselfish, like the longfin damselfish, than any other species. So they thought, okay, there's a connection. They did some more experiments, and they proved that the mycid shrimps are chemically attracted to the longfin damselfish. Cool. They are repulsed by predators, though, not shockingly. Um, But they're actually indifferent to non-farming fish, and to the farm itself. So this is an attraction oh. to the longfin damselfish itself, not the farm. Interesting. Or the algae okay. or anything. Um, a lot of fish eat mycid shrimps. They're very small, so kind of bottom step on the food on the food chain here. Oh, did you just say shrimpy? I did. Oh, grown. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Um, so... They wanted to run an experiment to see if the longfin damselfish protects the mycid shrimps. Right. 
So when when they're on the farm, they sure do. The motivation seems to be unclear, but it's probably just they're defending the farm and the mice and shrimp are on the farm. Not that they're defending the mice and shrimp, because sure. they did like experiments where they put them in like a bag and move them around the saw what the fish would do. Anyways, it's kind of funny. Um, but then the question remains, why do they let the mice and shrimp be there instead of chasing them away like they do to everything else? Like, okay, fine, you're not protecting them, but why do you even let them be there? Right. Um, so the hypothesis was that, you know, the shrimp poop fertilized the algae and helped them grow better. And somehow the fish understand that or have developed some tolerance. They just like notice some connection. I, I don't know how that kind of behavior, that seems pretty complicated. Right. I don't know how that evolved, but it's very, very cool. So what they did was they examined the quality of the algae in farms that did and did not have the mice and shrimp. Um, and then they examined the fish that had shrimp on their farms versus the ones that didn't. Um, so farms that had shrimps had both higher quality algae and those fish were in better physical condition. Got it. That makes, that makes sense. Seems to support the hypothesis. Yeah. Um, so long-fed damselfish we're going to suggest are domesticating or have domesticated mice and shrimps. Depends if you can find mice and shrimps living independently of the longfin damselfish. Um, anyways, that's super interesting. And uh, this is kind of like being able to watch the early steps of, you know, we have theories about how we domesticated animals and, and everyone understands how it works, but it's, it's very interesting to see these early stages. Yeah, right. Um, and so we do have, have time for... Homo sapien fun farming facts. Good. Um, Let's do it. I don't know if it's fun for everyone else, because this is just farming facts about Canada. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> but I didn't know what else to focus on. So Canada's um, beef production is $22 billion a year. Actually, 21.8, they rounded up. But, oh, those guys. Um, it contributes $22 billion to Canada's economy. Um, and there's 60,000 different cattle ranches in Canada. Okay. Locations in every single province. They don't say territory. I don't think cows would do that well in the territories, but I don't know. I don't know that for sure. Um, we live in Alberta. We do. So I'm going to, you know, not necessarily tell you everything about the other provinces, but we'll do, we'll do a few. Like, did you know that Saskatchewan is Canada's breadbasket and is one of the most productive global farming regions? Really? Yes. Okay. 34,500 farms in Saskatchewan. Ooh, wow. Um, are the total, so amount of Canada's total cultivated farmland, 40% of it's in Saskatchewan. Wow. Right? That's kind of cool. It is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, so, and they make 23% of our Canada's food, ex- agri-food yeah. exports. So that's, yeah, that's awesome. Um, Alberta though, 40,600 farms. Wow. Yeah. Well, there's a lot. a lot of farms too. Um, it's one of the world's most productive agricultural economies as well, apparently. Very cool. Yeah. So thought that'd, you know, be a little bit interesting. Um, number of eggs produced by Alberta 780 million that's a couple 
Yeah, I guess. Yeah. So there's also 120, well, more than 125 different vegetable and fruit crops grown in Canada. And I did not expect it to be that diverse. No. We seem to be a I fairly, didn't know our climate supported that. Um, yeah, fairly wheat and grain kind of is, is the picture that, you know, I usually think of when I... But, yeah. but there could be a lot of species or a lot of different crops within that Or, you know, that places category. that that are warmer in the winter that they can grow more things like Vancouver Island and Ontario yeah. and yeah, all yeah, right. of BC and everywhere that's not where we live that just got dumped on snow. True. Um, okay, one more or two more fun facts. Um, the agriculture and agri-food sector, we have, I have the 2018 number, um, was 7.4% of our GDP and $143 billion. Wow. Very yeah, cool. I actually wouldn't have guessed high enough if I would have, I would have guessed. Um, yeah, that's all my, that's my fun, fun fact. Very cool. Good job. Yeah, I hope everyone, you know, enjoyed the episode on farming animals. I learned so much. I hope you did too. Absolutely. Um, I, again, don't know what my next episode is going to be about, but I'm always open to suggestions. That's good. I'm kind of feeling, I kind of feel like I'm going to go with something historical but also maybe influenced by mythology. Like, you know, true story of the Trojan War or... Sure. Or the that thing in 300. That thing that happened in the movie 300. I kind of want to look into what really happened there too. So, you know, it might be something like that. But either way, I hope you do tune in next time. Um, once again, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new.